He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Welcome back to the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. Dr. Philip Ovedia is your host. I'm Jack Heald, the talking hairdo. And we are joined today by Nayiri, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce your last name. I think it's, nah, go. Pronounce <laughs> your last name for me. Mississippian. I feel like Mississippi or Mississauga. All right. Very I'm good. Here. Well, Phil, um, if you don't mind, tell us why this lovely lady is gracing our podcast. Yeah, um, just uh, another uh, person, a uh, wonderful person that I was fortunate to uh, stumble across um, in the uh, interwebs, as they say, uh, and really excited to uh, dig into Neary's uh, amazing story around her health. And uh, I think a lot in our audience are going to benefit from hearing it and resonate with it. And just uh, I hope it really inspires people as to what's possible. So uh, with that, uh, Nieri, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our audience a little bit, and then we can uh, get into your health journey. Okay, so I'm Nairi, uh, Nairi Misisian, uh, the host of the Low Carbon Fasting um, channel on YouTube. Um, I've been a type 1 diabetic now for 44 years, so I'd like to talk about type 1 diabetes today. Uh, because that's something I know a little bit about, having lived with it for 44 years. Uh, my educational background is in linguistics. I'm a retired educator now and uh, the director of a translation company, which I founded back in 2000. I'm a nutrition researcher and a coach as well. Um, um, that's it. <laughs> The the thing that no 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 not the it, there's not one thing I read a couple of your blog posts I I I like to get to know my guests before we start talking to them um, the one of the things that I was super excited about hearing about was exactly the type the 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 subject of your YouTube channel um, low carb and fasting combined with being a type one diabetic. That's the bit, that's the twist that we, we have, I haven't run into. Um, I, I think what I'd like you to, to talk about is how is this low carb and intermittent fasting approach to health and eating different for a type one diabetic? Well, um, the bottom line is it doesn't have to be different. I mean, for a type 1 diabetic, healthy lifestyle doesn't have to be different. Uh, there are precautions to be taken. Um, as, as you know, uh, type 1 diabetics are insulin dependent. And so constantly they have to adjust their insulin needs based on their activity levels and, and also based on um, how much food or what food they're eating. So insulin levels need to be adjusted. So that's something that needs to be taken into account when a type 1 diabetic is doing intermittent fasting or 
extended fasting for that matter as I do, and my blogs are on extended fasting. So insulin needs to be adjusted. Um, uh, during physical activity, for example, you might have either a drop um, or, or a rise depending on the type of exercise. Um, and also depending on, I mean, there are so many nuances there, but also depending on how much insulin you already have on board, because insulin injection it, that, that you inject remains in your system for a good three to four hours. So, so that insulin uh, will also be working while you're doing aerobic exercise, for example, going swimming or walking. So the likelihood is that while you're going swimming uh, or walking and you have insulin on board already, you're going to have a sharp drop, which is in dangerous. Your blood, in and your you blood glucose? It will, you will have a drop in your blood glucose, so you have to avoid that. So, uh, so there are so many um, complexities with, with management of type 1 diabetes. But if you have the confidence and the right knowledge and the right tools, you can do it. You can experiment and see what works for you. You must do it safely. And if you don't have the confidence, please do it with the help or advice of a physician. Physician, but the right tools for me. Um, uh, if if I can mention those, I'm not yeah. uh, affiliated with any of those companies. But the one of the tools that I use, uh, of course, is my CGM. This is the Freestyle Libre continuous uh, blood glucose monitor. So that tells me continuously. Uh, uh, my, what my blood blood glucose is. So I, all I need to do is use my phone and I just put it, hold it against the sensor. That's called the sensor. I can scan it and it shows my blood glucose. I don't have to do any finger prick testing uh, like I used to uh, before the CGMs came about. Uh, another important tool is um, my insulin pump. I currently use a tubeless pump. So instead of taking injections with uh, your, those uh, disposable syringes, gosh, I don't miss those anymore. Um, I've used them for years and years. Um, I use, I have a pump, so basically a monitor. This is the Omnipod pump. As I said, I'm not affiliated with them. Um, it's not the brand new version, but it does its job really well. So all I need to do is input how much food or what food I've eaten, mainly carbs. Um, and then it calculates based on the data that I've put into it, how much insulin I will need for it. And that insulin comes, uh, through a little patch that I have stuck. Currently, it's on my back. Otherwise, I would show it to you. So uh, you stick somewhere on your body and it has a tiny little reservoir in it and it contains about uh, three days worth of insulin. And uh, so this is the control uh, device. I just do all the uh, uh, sort of, I give it the input it needs and it calculates how much that little device stuck on my body should how much insulin it should deliver into my body. So these are these are the tools that I use and that also give me the confidence to tweak my insulin needs based on whether I'm fasting or not or whether I'm eating carbs or not, which I don't. Um, um, I mostly don't eat any carbs. Uh, and based on my activity levels. I so, was fascinated by the fact that you are, you, you're what we call a biohacker. You 
hack your own biology. I was really impressed that somebody with what, as a non-medical professional, I've always considered type 1 diabetes to be, that's one of those really serious things you just don't screw around with. Um, and I was just impressed that, that you you engage in that kind of biohacking. Mm-hmm. Um, Phil, I know you had a comment. I, no, I, 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 I actually following that. up on that in the area. Tell us a little bit about, you know, um, your early experiences around type 1 diabetes, some of the advice that you got, you know, early in your life about what to eat and how to kind of manage your life with type 1 diabetes. And then maybe that will lead into how you got to where you are today. Okay, so um, I was diagnosed 44 years ago. Um, I was born and raised in the Middle East. Um, So uh, I was diagnosed all those years ago. I don't remember much of life before I was diagnosed, but I do remember the day I was diagnosed. And I remember being at the hospital and not understanding anything. I think I spent the night there. Um, and I remember my tantrums when it came to the daily injections, which grandma and mom would literally force onto me. They would physically restrain me. So I would take my daily injection because I would die without it. They didn't know any other way. It wasn't that they were being cruel. They just didn't know how to handle it. I remember crying, kicking my legs. I remember all the tantrums. I was very young. Um, I remember grandma telling me, you're waking up all the neighbors. I, I didn't care. I just, I think I've rebelled and resisted for as long as I could until uh, I couldn't do it anymore. It was tiring. I had to accept being diabetic and having to inject myself every single day. Now, I don't remember a sort of restriction because I don't remember what I used to eat before. I don't remember the daily portions of cake. And then suddenly I was told you couldn't eat cakes. I just don't remember that transition. But it's interesting. I need to mention this. Um, In those days, I know we're talking the 70s and maybe even early, no, all of pretty much all of the 80s. Uh, the dietary advice, uh, well, at least in the Middle East, but I also found out recently that it was the same in Australia and probably the US as well. The advice for diabetics um, was to limit carbohydrates, um, not necessarily not to eat, but just not to eat sugar and limit carbohydrates and and um, and focus more on complex carbs. So I remember the meals mom would make for me, for example, and she would put uh, only one tablespoon of rice and a lot more lentils, for example, if that was what we were eating. So she'd give me more chickpeas and less of uh, the cracked wheat or, or, or bread. Um, I, I remember that. And that's how I was grown up, basically eating clean food, uh, homemade foods. There wasn't processed foods back then. We're certainly not when I was growing up and it wasn't something we ate at home. So it was mainly lower carbohydrate sort of diet, home home cooked, clean, as clean as uh, uh, could be. Until I came to the UK as a young, young adult uh, to study. So I came to the UK. One of the first things I did as a responsible Type 1 diabetic was, of course, I had to register at, well, at the local diabetes uh, clinic, which was based, based at the hospital in Cambridge at the time. Um, 
And that's when at my first, during my first visit, I actually found out that there is such a thing as, oh, diabetes, uh, di- there is, there's, that there is such a thing as oh, diabetics don't need to worry about, uh, you know, eating differently. Uh, we have insulin. We have good insulin. And that's what insulin is there for. Just eat whatever you want and match it with insulin. Cover it with insulin. Oh, that wow. was totally new to me. And, of course, I fully welcomed it. I remember calling my mom and saying, the doctors in the Middle East, they knew nothing. They know nothing. Don't ever tell me not to have a Coke because if I wanted a Coke, not that I ever liked Coke that much, but I just, uh, I literally told my mom all those, those you know, years you've kind of not giving me enough bread. Now I'm going to make up for it because I know I can cover it all with insulin. That's what they're telling me at the center. So I thought that I was raised in somehow in the wrong way, uh, that I was deprived somehow. That, but that only came to me when I moved to the UK. And that's how I lived for over 20 years in the UK. Eat what you want. And in fact, that it was good and important to eat carbohydrates. And, um, and that all I had to do was cover it with insulin. But of course, um, we know and Dr. Betty, you all know, it's impossible. It's virtually impossible to manually take the right dose of insulin to match and regulate your blood sugar rise uh, and drop. You just cannot replicate um, a working pancreas, uh, you know, the way they they think we can. It's just impossible. It's virtually impossible. So um, um, so I'm unhealthier and unhealthier, of course, uh, over uh, 20, 25 years until I found low-carbohydrate sort of diet. Yeah, and before we get to that, you know, I'll just kind of verify because uh, my brother, my older brother is a type 1 diabetic, and, uh, you know, the advice I saw him acting upon, you know, uh, really his whole life while we were growing up in the 1980s uh, here in the United States was exactly that, you know, that you just had to match your insulin to your carbohydrates. And I remember him, you know, always sort of doing the calculations and figuring out how much insulin to give him. Uh, this was, of course, pre, you know, insulin pumps and all of, you know, the great technologies that have come along. But the the direction from doctors then and unfortunately, this largely continues today uh, in mainstream medicine and in the diabetic, uh, you know, community, diabetic nutrition community is exactly that, that you don't need to restrict anything. You just need to match your insulin to the carbohydrates that you are eating. Um, I mean, the funny thing is, which diabetic um, wouldn't welcome such a message um, eat what you want. You don't have to watch your diet. I mean, for goodness sake, I don't have a working pancreas. How do I, how can I not watch my diet? But they told us, you don't have to watch your diet, live like everyone else and just take your insulin. Um, and of course I tried that and my HbA1c, which would average about, um, I would say 7.8, which is 662 millimoles, um, back in the, uh, back in the Middle East. So now in my twenties, uh, 
perhaps exacerbated by the fact that I was, you know, stressed, a stressed student, all that workload and everything uh, made it worse. But primarily it was the diet. I know it was the diet. Um, I, I was eating carbs. I suddenly started eating tons and tons of rice and bread and pasta, um, thinking it was okay and I could just control my blood sugars with, um, with insulin. And of course, my HbA once I remember the highest being it's probably been higher than that, but I the one I remember was twelve point eight percent, which is one hundred and sixteen millimoles. Now that is uh, a dangerously high a one c level. Um, that's when uh, at the hospital they told me, um, Nairi, we're going to give you an insulin pump. And that's going to be life-changing for you. It's going to improve your control. It's going to bring that HbA1c or the A1c, as you call it, down uh, to normal levels. Um, I, I welcomed it, of course. I, I loved my very first pump. It was a Medtronic pump. Uh, we're going back 16, 17, maybe even 18 years. I don't recall. Um, one of the very first Medtronic pumps. It was a tubed one. I remember hiding the tube. It just didn't look good, uh, hiding the tube under my uh, clothing. But uh, but the device itself was tiny enough, and I would mainly put it in my pocket and go to work or go to, go to university. Um, and they were right. It was life-changing for me, not having to uh, take multiple injections every single day. So in that respect, it was life-changing. It gave me freedom. Um, but my HbA1c did not come down. Mm. And so the pump was just another method by which I was receiving my insulin. So instead of the sp- disposable syringes, now I had a pump. And um, eventually I dreaded going to uh, my annual checkups. Uh, they made it, because my A1C wasn't coming down, uh, they wanted to see me every six months uh, because I was kind of a special case and I was t- talking about conceiving at the time. So they thought we have to monitor her, we have to bring her A1C down. Um, oh boy. Nothing they did and nothing that I did would bring my A1C down. I remember them, this was pre-CGM, so, so I would have to, um, to uh, do finger prick uh, blood test about eight to ten times every single day until my fingertips were so sore that I just dreaded doing it. But they forced me to do it. They said, once we give you the okay, then you can go and, you know, conceive or try to conceive. Um, they just, and I mean, quite rightly, so they did the right thing. They wanted to help me bring my A1C down. So they would call me three or four times every single day from the hospital or from the diabetes clinic, uh, checking on how I'm doing. But of course, there was no mention of, hey, lower your carbs. There was absolutely no mention of what I was eating. They were just um, monitoring me. And I knew what was this. So I became accountable, and maybe that helped slightly because my I, my A one C came down slightly from one hundred and sixteen or twelve point eight. I can't remember what it came down to, and then if, uh, and then I was pregnant, of course. But um, um, how did I discover low carb? Um, yeah. I was playing on YouTube. I can't can't remember what I was searching on YouTube. And I came across one of uh, Jason Funk's 
videos. Then I watched another and then another and then another. And it all made sense to me. It all made sense. And I thought, I'm going to try this. Because, you see, by that point, this was in 2015, uh, when I first started very slowly transitioning into low-carb. But by that point, I was already trying to uh, make changes to have better A1C levels. And, uh, and of course, I went to the extreme of, uh, okay, growing organic food at home. And I thought, okay, how can I get healthier? Stop buying supermarket produce. So you have to grow everything. And in the UK, UK of all places where we <laughs> barely ever see the sun, Jack, you'll know, uh, remember from your UK days, um, I managed to keep an organic garden that, which gave us enough produce through the summer months. I would wake up before going to work, wake up very early every morning and make a loaf of bread, fresh bread for that day because uh, I I ordered, in fact, the best quality uh, whole wheat (laughs) flour um, uh, because I assumed it was healthier and I would make bread at home so we wouldn't buy the shop-made ones. Um, We'd even make pastries and and even pasta machine. My husband would, would... manually just uh, operate that pasta machine, one of those old-fashioned ones to make us pasta at home. We did everything to the extreme um, to be healthier, but, uh, uh, but, but it just wasn't possible because we were still eating carbs. Um, okay, real quick. Real it quick. wasn't whether the pasta was shop-bought or homemade. It was still pasta. It was still made of flour. Quick it had question. the same impact on my blood sugars. Well, that that's what I wanted. I want to hear because I'm not familiar with what it is, what life is like to be a diabetic, let alone type one. What were the what was your health situation at this time when you stumbled on Jason Fung's videos? What what kind of symptoms were you dealing with on a regular basis? What was your life like um, prior to finding this? Well, my A1C was always higher. And what did that, what what was the effect of that? Did you feel anything? Yeah, that's the average blood sugar. But that also meant that my daily blood sugar figures were also all over the place. I would go right up, 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 up rise up and down. I would go right up after a pizza or pasta, which no one ever told me, don't don't eat. I would have been able, I wasn't addicted to food. I have never had this, I mean, as far as I know, I've never had um, food addictions. I would have happily given up the pasta and the pizza, but no one ever told me, Um, (laughs) or the French fries. I had no idea. So I would feel uh, 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 permanently fatigued, just constantly fatigued. Uh, I remember feeling um, nauseous as well. Uh, oh, so wow. Feeling like, because my blood sugars were constantly high, so I felt sick. Um, in fact, I used to feel like that in the mornings at waking up, and probably now with Hans hindsight, uh, it was because I was waking up with high blood sugars and I wasn't checking my blood sugars regularly. So so my with hindsight, I know that it was probably because I was waking up with high blood sugars. And the last thing I'd want to do uh, when you're just woken up with high blood sugars is eat. 
And um, so uh, I remember without my doctor's, or in fact, against my doctor's advice, that was one of the first things I did back in the year 2000. So we're going back. I stopped eating breakfast and I stopped taking my uh, morning injection. I remember remember you uh, writing about that. I, I stopped eating. Well, I thought if I, I won't take insulin and I will skip breakfast until and just have my lunch uh, at work. Um, I remember my doctor just uh, telling me, oh, no, no, you can't do that. You can't skip breakfast. Was, have a protein bar, have something. And of course, protein bars are just, we know, are full of unhealthy ingredients, but they're also carb bars, basically. They're anything but carbs so um and i didn't take any of that advice i just couldn't stomach anything with high blood sugars early in the morning um so i just decided not to eat um in fact i joked to my to my friend saying the last time i had a morning meal or something to eat the last time i had breakfast was the year 1999 <laughs> and it's true it is actually true i haven't had breakfast or a morning meal since since then. So, yes, uh, so that was one of the first things I did back then against my doctor's advice. Um, but yes, it's not a good feeling. You feel constantly tired. You can't focus. Of course, I couldn't focus at work. Um, I, I was just so tired by 2 p.m. All I wanted to do was just get back home and, um, and have a nap or have a sleep because my blood sugars were constantly high. Or if they weren't high, they were fluctuating all day long, up and down and up and down. Um, so what's what's the what is the effect? What is the experience that you feel when your blood sugars are fluctuating up and down like that? Okay, when they're uh, rising and rising real high, uh, I would feel. Uh, physically sick, like almost like vomiting. Um, I would have blurred vision. I would have a loss of uh, mental sharpness or I wouldn't be able to focus. Um, Maybe feeling of thirst, although I don't remember much of that, generally drink a lot of water. Um, but I also, I mean, one of the worst things from my past or carb, carby days <laughs> was the constant yeast infections. And I would be told at the clinic, oh, this, this is pretty common with diabetics. And all they would do is just prescribe uh, canistin cream and that's it. They'll take care of it. I remember it was constant. I just recovered from one and a month later, yet another one, yet another one. And of course, that was a direct result of high blood sugars. Um, but I wasn't told that, oh, take your canister and just that will sort it out. Oh, of course, yeah. just uh, treating the symptoms rather than what's causing it. Um <laughs> Okay. I don't want to go back to those days at all. So you stumble onto Jason Fung and then? I thought I'd try. I thought I'd try it. I think one of the first things I cut out was flour. I did it really slowly because I didn't have the support. And going back into 2015, um, the the community, low carb, there, there wasn't. From what I remember, there wasn't a low-carb community online either for support. Um, I couldn't talk to my diabetes clinic about what I was doing because uh, the one time that I mentioned it, I was dismissed and I was told, oh, no, no, it's a dangerous thing I'm doing. 
uh, and that I needed to eat carbs, especially if I wanted to have another baby. In fact, I was oh, told specifically that I know that to be total nonsense. Um, it's just not true. But um, so I did it alone. So that's why I did it very, very slowly. So one of the first things I cut out was, of course, the white sugar and and flour. So they went out. Um, and then gradually I started cutting out uh, other carbohydrates like uh, beans and legumes, I think you call them, right? Uh, 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 the lentils and chickpeas and other stuff like that. So I cut them out as well. And I noticed over time uh, that the more I, uh, I was restricting my carbohydrate intake, the better my blood sugars were getting, the better the the daily variability was getting and the less hungry I was feeling. So basically, uh, avoiding the carbohydrates was uh, having a good if, if, if impact on me. I wasn't feeling hungry anymore. Um, I wasn't snacking constantly. I wasn't having ups and downs all day long. Um and I was more energetic. And of course, the yeast infections completely disappeared, <laughs> disappeared and have never come back in seven years. Um, wow. So um, it was in uh, 2000, I think, 18. It was in 2018. So I was new to this, still had been a couple of years or three years. Uh, I woke up one day with uh, frozen shoulders Um uh, Dr. Reddy, you, you you probably know diabetic fro- frozen shoulders. I mean, are um, incredibly painful. And it wasn't just, it started off with my uh, one of my shoulders. And then a few days later, it was the other shoulder. And they were locked. I mean, I couldn't move my shoulders. And they were so painful. I couldn't even put my clothing on without help. I couldn't sit at a table and eat because I couldn't move my arms at all. Uh, I'd cry in pain. I went to see my doctor and they told me, uh, we'll have to give you uh, injections. I think it was cortisol, cortisol injections, and that will uh, help with the inflammation. But of course, at no point did anyone address the root cause. Uh, why did you uh, have uh, you know, frozen shoulders? How can we avoid uh, or prevent another one? Uh, or, uh, or your other joints from <laughs> from getting inflamed and getting locked and, and bent. In fact, they didn't tell me anything. Uh, I, I refused the injections. Um, and they specifically told me, don't, uh, don't exercise. And I told them, well, I don't anyway, because I've never stepped in a gym until 2018. <laughs> but that day I came back home and I told my husband, I'm coming to the gym with you. My husband is a former athlete, and uh, I can't, can't tell you how delighted he was um, to hear that I wanted to join him in the gym. And uh, from that day, with frozen shoulders, I hit the g- gym, and I was able to lift weights uh, close to t- uh, twice my uh, my weight. So, which is uh, which is uh, quite an achievement. I'm very proud of it, actually. Um, I'm close to 50, so uh, having never stepped in a gym before because uh, I, I didn't like the look of muscles, especially on females, I didn't, I didn't know the, about the importance of uh, having uh, strength. I just had no idea. I thought it was just muscles were for looks. And so, no, they're not for me. But now, since 2018, I do serious uh, um, uh, training, resistance training, about four to five times a day. 
uh, okay. a week, I, sorry. <laughs> I can't let this frozen shoulder thing go unexplored. You talked about the root cause, but you didn't say what the root cause was. And you didn't tell us how you got through it. What happened? You, you well, got frozen shoulders and then... And then it wasn't long after, actually, I had the carpal tunnel syndrome, which is when, yeah, so my my fingers started, the joints in my fingers started bending. In fact, I can show you now. Now they're all fine, apart from just this this finger is slight bend still. Um, uh, So gradually, oh, I have to say that, I think gradually I found out about uh, uh, the link uh, between inflammation and um, and vegetable oils or seed oils, so I um, yeah, there's a big link. So I uh, started eating only coconut oil and olive oil. Um, so so that was one of the other things I did apart from uh, obviously uh, lowering my carbs even more, and um, and. I realized I had to introduce meat because I was a vegetarian. I'd been a vegetarian for 30 years. So in 2021, 20, I believe, I, uh, yeah, last year, last year, I introduced meat into my diet for the first time in 30 years on my birthday. I did it on my birthday. I thought that would be a good day to remember in the future as the day I started eating meat. Um, I think that's helped with my strength levels it's helped with my uh, blood sugar levels because they're more stable um my uh, so to, i put out a tweet today showing some examples of what kind of blood sugars i'm having in a day and there's they're normal they would be i mean if no if someone didn't know i had type 1 diabetes uh they would take those blood sugars as uh you know as of someone who who doesn't have diabetes so i'm very proud i mean it doesn't mean i have perfect blood sugar control i'm constantly learning and experimenting and each day is a new day and uh you know what works one day doesn't necessarily mean the next day because there are so many variables from stress levels sleep um yeah activity levels even how hot the weather gets and how much i'm sweating sitting at home for example if i don't have the ac on and i'm sweating my blood sugar is going to drop it's a, there are so many variables but all i do is i monitor my blood sugars constantly I make a point of keeping my blood sugars in range. And and the range that I've set for me, which is my target goal, where I want to be is a lot lower than what uh, Diabetes UK in the UK, and it's probably the same for ADA, uh, recommend. And I put out a tweet today because I was just so frustrated. Um you know, another type one, because I'm constantly helping type ones. I have a Facebook group. We share ideas and uh, experiments and um, we try and support each other because we don't have that that level of support that we need from our physicians. And so we try and support each other. So uh, bless, I mean, bless her. She, she just, she said, uh, but they told me at the hospital to uh, to set my target goal up to ten millimoles. I mean that is ten millimoles is high in my in my books. It is 
180, 180 milligrams over deciliter. So that's that's high. So if you're telling diabetics that, you know, as long as you're staying within the normal range up to 180, um, then you'll be fine. Well, no, I'm sorry, but that is not the scientific truth. You can expect better. You can do better. In fact, if you are type 1 listening to this, I know it's overwhelming, but but raise the bar for yourself. Raise your expectations because you can. Trust me, if, if I was able to do it and I was so close to giving up because I thought I was a failure, um, anyone can do it with the right tools and with the right support. So never give up. Uh, no, it's not normal to have blood sugars hovering at 180 all day long or going up and down. That is not normal. So when you see your doctors now and you, oh, you, we you lost know, him. they see your blood work, <laughs> they see how much better your Phil, hemoglobin. Phil, you, uh, your signal flipped out there just for a minute. I just want to make sure that we get it. So if you don't mind, please repeat your question. So when you see your doctors now and they see your blood work and they look at your A1C and they look at your logs from your continuous glucose monitor, and I'm sure they're thrilled about what they see because it's better than probably 99% of their type 1 diabetic patients. What do they say when you tell them how you've achieved this? Well, times have changed, and my diabetes doctor himself has changed so over the last uh, seven, eight years. And there's more uh, acceptance now, I think, or certainly where uh, I'm treated. Um, so my di- di- diabetes consultant or endocrinologist, as you call them, is uh, supportive. But he does tell me, look, do what you're doing, because I really don't know how to support you. I really don't understand the low carbohydrates or way of living as much as you seem to be. So just continue to do what you're doing. Um, The only thing he was concerned about, though, was that with uh, strict keto or ketovore, uh, which is mainly animal sort of based products, this is what I eat mainly, with some small amount of veggies or berries every now and and again, um, uh, what happened was my LDL went up. Only slightly, not much, only slightly. Um, and he was concerned about that now. So <laughs> he said, uh, I recommend you take statins. I said, no, doctor, you know, politely, I will refuse. And I contacted Dave Feldman um, uh, to see if I could sign up in his study because he was uh, asking for volunteers who are lean mass hyperresponders or lean people like me, uh, generally fit, uh, who are on keto and whose LDL have gone up. And he said, but your LDL isn't even high. You don't know. You're, you're, we're looking at much more, 10 times higher than that. So so then I just sat back and I thought, okay, well then. So, so the adopting uh, meat uh, back into my diet wasn't uh, such, a, such a bad thing. Maybe that's why LDL went up. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but I, I don't much care about it. So... Um, I'm doing really well. Uh, they used to tell me you have to, uh, the ideal for you is 5.8%. So that's where uh, your A1C uh, needs to be. Uh, so that's 40, 40 millimoles, 5.8%, which is which is normal sort of A1C. And that number had evased me for decades and decades. And I thought myself as a, as a failure because I'd never never get anywhere close to that. 
And now, of course, my recent A, A, A1C was 5.7%. Uh, 5. So. Yeah, amazing work. And, and um, just uh, what would you say your average uh, daily dose of insulin is these days? Um, so as I said, having a pump and adjusting my insulin dosage on a daily basis based on activity and food and whether I'm having one meal, because some days I only have one meal uh, and uh, I'd be fasting for about 20, 20, 20, uh, 22, 23 hours. And some days I'll be having two meals in a window of four to six hours. So depending on what I'm doing, uh, it could be anywhere between 16 units per day to... Um, to uh, 28 units per day. And 28 would be on the two days when, uh, uh, when women um, ovulate. So it would, be, it would be a lot more insulin on those two days. But other than that, it's generally average of, I would say, 20, 20 units per day. And back when your hemoglobin A1C was 10, 12, you know, back in those days, do you remember about how much insulin you would go through in a day? Uh, 40. I remember the 40, but I don't remember, uh, I don't remember the details. So, so again, you know, a lot more insulin and a lot worse blood sugar control. Um, and yet, uh, you know, this is still not considered, uh, an acceptable way to, uh, manage, you know, diabetic type one diabetics, uh, for the large part, which is just simply amazing. You know, one of the, um, as you know, you know, here in the United States, the the cost of insulin has become a political issue. It's, you know, it it is out of control. And there are many diabetics who can't afford their insulin or have to choose between, uh, you know, putting gas in their car and buying insulin, um, which is horrible. And yet no one in that discussion on a political level says, if we helped diabetics to better manage their sugars, they would need less insulin like yourself and, and many others have demonstrated, you know, while, you're, while your story is amazing, it's also not unique. We're seeing more and more type one diabetics, certainly the type two diabetics that are able to achieve, you know, similar results with these uh, changes in their diet. Yes, I'm certainly not the only one. Um, uh, I have a Facebook group for people who also who, who are doing keto, but also extended fast. I mean, there are type one diabetics in my group who are safely fasting for five days, um, and why not? You're able to do it safely and manage your uh, blood sugars. Why can't a type 1 diabetic do it? Um, I just don't understand why you would be different for a type 1 diabetic as long as it's within sort of uh, within uh, 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 safe limits. Uh, talk about I want, I want you to talk about fasting now because that's probably to this layman's mind the most surprising thing about your story. Um, you know, I've been with Phil now for a, a year hearing these stories over and over again and all the extraordinary health benefits of a low-carb, high-fat diet for all kinds of medical conditions. But one of the things I've just always assumed, because I'm an idiot, I guess, is that if you're a diabetic, fasting is really, really dangerous. Clearly, that was misinformation. 
talk more about that. I want to hear about your, your journey, your, this epic journey that you have with, with fasting, extended fasting. Um, I think I, I'd like to start with, you know, going back to when I was first diagnosed. So we're looking at the 1970s. Um, for example, back then, I would, um, I would take a set amount of insulin in the morning uh, to cover me for all the meals I was eating <laughs> throughout the day. That's, that, it was a completely different kind of insulin. So I would take that insulin first thing in the morning. And then, of course, you would have to eat because otherwise your uh, blood sugars would draw, uh, drop uh, dangerously low. I remember be, be, being in uh, first grade, for example, and my teacher would um, uh, bring me food to eat at a, at a certain time in in class and I'd be so embarrassed as a five six year old but I remember that vividly because I mom uh, would bring my lunchbox to school and I had to have my, my my meals at set times because I've already taken insulin for it first thing in the morning and then life became a little bit sort of easier when we were told uh take your insulin just prop uh, but just before you eat, about 20 minutes before you eat, or even during uh, the time that you're eating, just take your insulin um, uh, to cover the meal that you're eating. Uh, so I did that too. Um, so if you're not eating, I mean, uh, okay, so I think I have to, <laughs> to mention the two types of insulin first for, 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 for type 1 diabetics. We all need a basal level of insulin, so our sort of baseline insulin levels to keep us uh, functioning and alive. Because insulin is not just you know the bad bad guy. Insulin is a, is a very important hormone. Without which, uh, as type ones would know, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't survive. Um, so we need insulin. We need a baseline of insulin to keep us alive. Um, so that's a that so once you figure out how much you need for your baseline level to keep your blood sugars steady throughout the day, then you can get away, you know, with, with just not eating. Skip your meals, don't eat, and nothing will happen. You're not taking any carbs, you're not taking any further insulin to cover the carbs. So you're not having rises, you're not having lows. All you're doing throughout the day is not eat. Enjoy your day and just take your base baseline level of insulin. That is the level that we all need. Now, this is what happens when I'm fasting. So when I'm fasting, I'm basically not eating. And because I'm not eating and I'm not taking any carbohydrates or, in fact, any calories, any food, then um, then I don't need to take any further insulin, which we call bolus insulin. So I'm not taking any... Um, um, sort of bolus insulin to cover the food that I'm eating. So if I'm not eating, all I need to worry about is the baseline, the baseline insulin level. But to get that right is, you know, can be a bit of a challenge. You need to experiment. You need to try it out. You need to try it for several days to see what works for you. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say if, if you find yourself dropping too low, Take a glucose tablet. Take a glucose tablet, bring your blood sugar back up again, and make a record of it. 
write it down in your notebook so the next time you're going the whole day without food, you know to reduce to your baseline insulin because the last time you did it, you dropped. Obviously, that was a bit too much insulin for your body's basic needs. So if you find yourself dropping, take glucose tablet. You have to treat. You have to treat you know, you're low because it's dangerous. Take your glucose tablet and don't worry about it. It's not the end of the world. Try it again another day, but with much less insulin. Uh, And if you reduce your insulin, say from 10 units per day as your baseline level, you reduce it to uh, eight units. And now you find that you're having too many rises throughout the day. Well, it just basically means that Eight units was not enough for you, so go for nine next. Nine will be the only one in the middle. Um, That's just an example. So um, uh, when I'm fasting, not eating throughout the day, I uh, could um, probably take only about six six units, six to eight units, uh, sometimes even five units uh, of insulin per day. That's all I need to um, to stay alive. Uh, now, it's more challenging when your fast is longer, of course, because um, so, so on the second day, you're becoming more insulin sensitive. So the eight units of insulin for your first day may have worked, but on the second day, you'll find that you've got no more glycogen stores. That's probably what's happening, uh, Dr. Ovedia. You might be able to contribute here. So you're You've completely emptied your glycogen or sugar stores in your liver. So uh, you have no sugar, no, no sugar on board. And so the eight units which worked for your first 24 hours might, might be a bit too much for your second 24 hours. So be prepared to reduce the eight units to, say, six units for your second day. So it just involves a lot of tweaking and adjusting, but you have to take it seriously. It's not a game. Um, It's your life. I mean, we don't want you to drop too low and we also don't want you to have dangerous highs. Um, If you don't have sufficient insulin on board, um, you might develop a condition and your blood sugars are rising too high Uh, you might develop a condition called ketoacidosis, which is a DKA, a a, a sort of fatal condition. So we don't want you to be irresponsible. It's not a game. Do it safely and always ask for support. And where possible, use the tools available for you, like CGMs um, or a pump, although the pump isn't essential for, for extended fast. You can still adjust your insulin dosage, uh, whichever way you're taking your insulin. But a CGM is really important because it would um, uh, record dangerous lows or dangerous highs when you're sleeping through the night and the alarm would go off um, to wake you up so you can address it. So it would basically keep you awake. So I don't think I would have the confidence. I'm not saying I wouldn't do an extended fast without my CGM, but I certainly wouldn't wouldn't be as confident to do it without. And I know that every type one in my Facebook group who does extended fasts or even intermittent fasting, every single one of them has a CGM. If you're a type two rather than a type one, are the rules all basically the same? No, it's very different. You know, we have to realize that type one and type two diabetes are only 
share a name. They're really completely different diseases. Um, wow. And it, it's kind of crazy that. that we think of them as the same. You know, type one is when you can't make any insulin. And type two basically comes from having too much insulin in your body over an extended period of time. Um, and uh, the only thing they really share is that you end up having high blood sugar. Uh, but they're completely different diseases and, and, you know, things like fasting and low carbohydrate diets. I mean, certainly they benefit, both benefit from low carbohydrate diets uh, and uh, fasting. But, uh, you know, I, I agree with Neary that, you know, fasting for a type 1 diabetic is not something to be taken lightly. But it is possible with the right guidance and with the right education. And it, I think it can be a, a great tool uh, for them to use. I do want to touch on something, um, the, the you know, low blood sugar um, hypos, as they're called, uh, getting hypoglycemic um, is a major issue for most type 1 diabetics. And talk about, and it's, you know, it's life-threatening. You can die from having low blood sugar as a type 1 diabetic. And it also is one of those things that can, you know, be pretty miserable in terms of symptoms and quality of life. So talk about the difference now versus, you know, in the past as to how often uh, you would get, you know, hypoglycemic. Most people would assume, oh, you're not eating carbs, you're not, you're fasting, you must get hypoglycemic all the time. Uh, and I suspect that that's not the case. As I said, no, that's not the case if you're not taking insulin or too much of, of it at the same time. So if you're not eating and taking too much insulin, yes, you are going to have a se severe hypo, uh, which is dangerous. And you may even need, um, you know, assistance, someone's assistance to, uh, to, 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 re uh, to recover from your hypo. So it's a dangerous condition. Um, but low blood, may I continue? Oh, please. Yeah. Be because Phil is a surgeon, sometimes he gets calls. And so, <laughs> yeah, please continue. Yeah. So, um, so as I said, so low uh, blood sugars are uh, not fun. Uh, you want to avoid them at, uh, at all costs. It doesn't mean that if you are eating a low-carbohydrate diet, you will never, ever experience a low blood sugar. Um, you, you may, you may, but those instances will be a lot lower and those uh, lows will be less severe and will have less of an impact on uh, on your health and um, or, or on your social life. Um, for example, before when my diet was high in carbs, I would rise uh, literally within thirty minutes of eating a whole bowl of. 80 grams of pasta. I remember the 80 grams because I would do cal carb counting in order to match my insulin to the carbs. Uh, I even attended courses on ca carb counting. And I thought, now I have all the skills I need to manage my diabetes. But of course, it didn't help. But I was able to count carbs. So, <laughs> so I would count my carbs, take the uh, right dose of insulin um, or the recommended dose of insulin to cover those carbs. But I would still rise. After a bowl of pasta or bread, I would rise, a sharp rise. And within, I would say, an hour or two, I would have a sharp drop. 
So a sharp rise would uh, lead to a sharp drop. And now as I would be dropping down from a peak, uh, from those Himalayan peaks, as I would be dropping down, even before I get to low figures or what's considered hypoglycemia, even before I would hit those, uh, those levels, I'd start experiencing hunger and shakiness and blurred vision. So I would actually experience the same hypoglycemic um, uh, symptoms when I wasn't even hypoglycemic technically. I would just be dropping down. And as you're dropping down, blood sugar's dropping down, what happens is your ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone, would go up. So as ghrelin is going up, you're craving food again. And this this is what happens to non-diabetics as well. Uh, that's why they're craving carbs. Uh, after a bar of chocolate, they're, they're craving another one or another snack every hour because blood sugar's dropping. As blood sugar's dropping sharply, uh, you're craving more food because ghrelin, hunger hormone, is going up. Um, so now because I don't have those sharp rises, I don't eat um, carbs. Uh, and if I do, they're under five grams a day if I do. So I mainly eat protein. So I take insulin to cover my protein because a portion of the protein would uh, would still convert to, to glucose. Uh, so um so uh, so now my rises aren't sharp. So I don't have the sharp rises. And because I don't have the sharp rises, I don't have the sharp drops either. Um, and so I don't have those constant hung- cravings and constant feelings of hunger. And then I have to eat again and again. So I virtually feel no hunger. I could go on for 24 hours and longer without food simply by burning my own uh, stored fats. Um, if I may, I'd like to, uh, to oh, yeah. mention um, an experiment they did uh, in 2020 in the UK, and it was called a project. Uh, it was called the Zero Five Hundred Project, um, uh, uh, masterminded by Dr. Ian Lake, who is a GP general uh, practitioner, primary care doctor um, in the UK, who's also type one diabetic. Um, and uh, so, uh, so the participants ran 500 kilometers, I think, or maybe it was miles, 500 miles over five days uh, on zero calories. So totally fasted. And some of the participants were type 1 diabetics. So five days of no food um, for five days. So uh, the whole run would last five days and they compared the blood sugar because they were wearing cgms the blood sugars of diabetics to non-diabetics and they found out that that you know when people were obviously burning fat stored fat in those five days they weren't eating anything um so blood sugars of some of the non-diabetics would go uh, what uh, your ada would now consider oh no that's dangerous that's a low they would be like what you would consider technical or what the diabetes associations think of as low, but they would run low um, as well as the type 1 diabetics. They would run low for days and they'd be perfect and perfect physical health, uh, mental health, 
because their body was not relying on sugar. So when their blood sugar was a little bit low, uh, the brain, and that is the explanation I've been able to understand from it, the brain was not panicking. The brain was actually uh, switching to fat burning. So the brain itself, and it's a mis- it's another misconception because we think, okay, your brain needs glucose. But in those is- instances, when these people were having lower blood sugar, so there wasn't enough blood sugar, um, to to fuel the brain, uh, the, then the brain was actually burning fat so instead. To keep um, so uh, that's that's another th- the definition of. I think we have to we have to define what a low is um, differently for someone who's eating a high carbohydrate diet, or for someone who is not eating, who's a fat fat adapted person who's burning fat. For fuel, because if you're burning fat for fuel, you're not panicking. Your body is not in panic mode. You're in full functioning mode when you are at a figure of 65 uh, milligrams in in your measurements. Uh, that's blood sugar measurement 3.6. Uh, that's that's the case with me as well, and I know a lot of other type ones who are on keto. 3.6 is normal blood sugar for me. I could stay 3.6 all day long, not go up not go down, that's 65. Whereas in my carb eating days, at 65, a level of 65 would be uh, quite dangerous for me. I wouldn't be able to function. I would have to phone my husband and say, come help me, I'm dying. Wow. <laughs> So that is the difference. The difference is whether you are a carb, uh, a sugar burner or a fat burner. But for those of us who are fat adapted, um. I think our metabolism needs to be taken into consideration. Um, that's one thing I don't like about my current uh, the CGM because when it gives me graphic representation of my daily uh, sort of graph, anything lower than 70, it turns the line into a red line. It just wants it to appear as danger, red. Danger, danger. You're dangerous. But that is not for me. That is not that I've tried to change the color. It's just, it just comes, you know, it's a default system. I cannot change that red. And I hate seeing it because it just leaves the impression, hey, that's, there's something dangerous in the, uh, you know, those two hours were dangerous for you. And yet they weren't dangerous for me. Um, I think that's something that uh, CGM companies need to take into account and trust people. I know they have safety, um, you know, uh, they have safety to think about, but but they also have to to give diabetics the trust that we need so we can manage, we can use their device to manage our diabetes as best we can. I've tried contacting uh, Abbott, asking them questions about why they insist on doing this, and uh, haven't been able to uh, to reach them. So, um, so tell us a little bit. I, I I have to tell you, I have learned things. I've had misconceptions corrected during this conversation, for which I'm grateful. One of the things that I am surprised to have learned is how that type 1 and type 2 are really two different diseases and therefore have to be managed in entirely different ways. Um, and I'm also getting that that those of you who, who have type 1 diabetes um, 
in particular really need one another's support and this shared um, experience, things we've learned that work. And I guess that's at least a big part of what you do these days. Um, tell me more about that. Your your coaching, your uh yeah, give us the give us the four one one on that. By the way, in America, the four one one is colloquialism for give us all the information. <laughs> I apologize there for um, our international listeners. <laughs> I'll do my best to give you my four one one, my five cents or two cents or whatever it's called. Okay, so um, well, thank you for bringing that up. Yes, I think. All diabetics or anyone with any health condition, uh, we all need the support of one another. We all benefit from meeting other people with the same condition and sharing experiences. I mean, that's that's for whatever condition you have. Um, and for type 1s who are doing keto, uh, we're a much smaller group. And for tough ones who are doing keto and fasting, whether it's intermittent fasting or extended fasting, now that even narrows the group down more. So you're not going to go down the road and meet or meet your next 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 door neighbor in the same boat. So you do need to use social media uh, to find other people who share the same experiences. But even then, you're likely to find that people are doing pretty much the same thing in different ways or what you find that what works for you may not necessarily work for someone else so um because there are so many variables and nuances um i'm always uh happy uh to help or share my experiences with uh the type ones especially the type ones in my group, in my uh, Facebook group, who either post a question in the group or reach me uh, personally. Uh, I'm not a physician. I emphasize one of the first things I tell them, have your best friends by your side. And your best friends are um, insulin, whichever way you deliver your insulin, and uh, glucose taps. You have to have glucose taps by your side because you don't know at one point you're going to have a you know a drop and you may need those uh, glucose taps. Um, but uh, I, I, so I support them. I never. Uh, I don't know if that's uh, important to mention here, but I uh, I don't I don't charge anything uh, uh, for um, you know for that, and that can take quite a um, <laughs> quite a big chunk in my uh, on my day. Uh, at times, I can so can't leave them. I feel I feel uh, bad for having done or experienced something myself and not sharing it with someone who's reaching out to me. So I'm saying it. I mean, if you do think you can benefit from my guidance or my five cents or two cents, is it two cents or five cents? No, don't worry about it. Inflation. <laughs> so, we don't know anymore. Feel free to reach out. I will do my best to help you. Um, I also do coaching sessions to all people, whether they're interested in weight loss or um, reversing insulin resistance, 
pre-diabetes or even reversing type 2 diabetes. I've had clients who've reversed their type 2 diabetes as well. Uh, With the help, I'm not a physician, with the help of their physician who was supportive and, and delighted that he was working with a coach. So his physician helped him reduce his medication until he needed no more medication and I was able to support him with his uh, dietary sort of changes and giving him moral support. Um, well, now, you're a people, people are at this point are going, how do I get a hold of her? Okay, so well, I'm on Twitter under, under um, NTS Translation. Um, and that's that was I created my account when uh, I set up my translation company. Um I'm on YouTube, uh, or we have a YouTube channel, uh, Low Carb and Fasting. Uh, that's the name of the channel. Uh, Low Carb and Fasting is also on Instagram, uh, has a Facebook page. We have a Telegram um, uh, channel as well. And we have two Facebook groups, one for specifically Middle Eastern audience, uh, because having grown up in the Middle East, I thought mm, that some of these messages aren't going through to some of the people that I really would like to reach. And so I set up a group specifically for Middle Eastern uh, audiences because I was familiar with what they like to do, how they like to live, what they like to eat. Um, and so that's why I created a group specifically for that audience and another Facebook group specifically for type 1 diabetics who are doing keto and fasting. Or interested in learning how to do keto and how to do fasting. True. All right. True. Well, I just, I'll remind our listeners that uh, all that contact information will be available in the show notes. So you don't have to remember it. Just check out the show notes and it'll all be there. Phil. Uh, for for those of us who are for those who are watching, you see that Phil's image has disappeared, but we still have him with us uh, on the audio track. Anything else before we uh, close up shop for the day? No, I just want to thank Neri for uh, sharing her amazing story. I'm sure people are going to get you know hope and empowerment uh, yeah. from her journey, and you know ultimately that's what we started this podcast for is, is to give people hope and to empower them to take control of their health. And, uh, Neary is just a shining example of that. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. You are, uh, uh, you're a light and, uh, your energy and your, your obvious good health are quite inspirational. I appreciate it. Well, it's it's always an honor to get to speak to folks uh, like you. I'm grateful to be here. I want to remind our listeners that you can follow Dr. Ovedia on Twitter at iFixHearts. That's a, the, probably the best way to follow him. And uh, go to his website, iFixHearts.co, to take his metabolic health quiz. Uh, that's a real good way to start yourself down the road to getting metabolically healthy. For uh, Philip Ovedia and our guest, Nayiri Masissian. I did that pretty good. I'm Jack Heald. This is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast, and we'll talk to you next time. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Ovedia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at 
ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.